Father, we thank you for blessing us with another opportunity to come together. Lord, um, your word says that this is the Lord's day, and that is why we have gathered together even on a holiday such as today, Christmas, uh, because it is your day, and we are here to worship you and to lift high your name and, and to come to know you better uh, and to be equipped in order to better make you known to others. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, help us to come humbly, help us to come eager to know our great God more. Help us to come to love you more as a result of today and to come to love others more as a result of what we hear. Help us, Lord, to, to listen with faith, with ears to hear, ready to do your bidding because we trust in you, Lord. Please bless our time as we hear from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're returning to a text that we looked at last night during a, the Christmas Eve service. And uh, it's not going to be the exact same message, so don't fall asleep just because we're going to the same place. Um, we're going to dig in quite a bit deeper to this text, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. You, you will hear some of the same things, but uh, there will be many new things too. So try to pay attention. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18, Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel." which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Today we celebrate the most incredible miracle that has ever taken place in the history of the universe, and I really mean that. I'm not overstating things. The miracle that I'm talking about is the incarnation when Almighty God the Son took on human nature in order to accomplish our redemption. An incredible miracle. And such a miracle that God has done for us demands a response from us. And feeling nostalgic about this event one month out of every year is not the response that God requires from us. No, the response that he requires from us is that we count the cost of following him and that we would find him to be worth infinitely more than all that this world could give to us. And having determined that it's worth following him, we pick up our cross daily and in faith we follow after Jesus Christ. That is the response that what we're celebrating today requires of us. 
The birth of Jesus Christ is unlike any birth that has ever occurred in the history of the world. And Matthew highlights that for us in this first chapter. And one way that he highlights this is by how he opens up his gospel in the first 17 verses. Verse 1 of this chapter says, The record or the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then through the next 16 verses, Matthew will recount the line of Jesus Christ from Abraham down through King David all the way to Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, who was of the line of David. And by doing this, Matthew is showing that Jesus is the legitimate heir to the throne of David. Matthew is demonstrating that Christ's claim to be the Messiah is a legitimate claim because he has the necessary genealogical qualifications. But that's not all that Matthew is doing in these first 17 verses. In verses 2 through 15, Matthew repeats a phrase over and over again. He says, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And he does that all the way through. There is a lot of begetting or fathering going on in these verses. But when we hit verse 16, Matthew does not say, when we get to Joseph, he does not say, Joseph begat Jesus, which is what you would expect him to say. Instead, he says that Joseph was the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Matthew wasn't able to say Joseph begat Jesus. There was something different about how Jesus was begotten compared to all the others who had come before him in his kingly line. And Matthew tells us about it in verses 18 through 25. Verse 18, he says, Now the birth of Jesus, unlike all these other births that have happened, was as follows. And his retelling of this account of Jesus' birth begins with a problem. And it's a human problem. It's the kind of problem that we often experience, maybe not to the degree, certainly not to the degree that Joseph was about to experience, but it's the kind of problem that we as believers encounter when God has a plan and we don't know that plan and we encounter a trial that fits into that plan, but we don't see how it fits into that plan. That presents a problem for us, and that is a problem that Joseph finds himself facing. It's a human problem, and we see it in verses 18 to 19. In verse 18, Matthew continues, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So, it says that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. They were not yet fully married. They were not yet living together as husband and wife. They had not yet consummated their marriage, but they were fully committed to one another as indicated by their betrothal. Betrothal in New Testament Jewish culture was far more binding than our American engagements. In order to break a betrothal, back then, you had to actually go through a divorce in order to break that. Today, when you get engaged, and if you decide not to go through with that engagement, to break it, all you have to do is return the ring, or as I mentioned last night, send a text, 
or if you really want to stick it to your fiancé, not show up on the wedding day. That's all it takes to break that engagement. Not so back then. You needed to divorce the person to break the engagement. So betrothal was basically going past the point of no return for a couple. You were considered husband and wife when you were betrothed, even though you were not yet together. And it was during this period that Mary was found to be pregnant. And before continuing on with the narrative, Matthew stops here in verse 18 to give us some inside information. He tells us that Mary was not pregnant through an act of immorality. Instead, she was pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's all that Matthew tells us. Luke gives us a lot more information about how this came to be. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 1. We find a much more detailed account as to how this miracle took place. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged or betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So a creative miracle has taken place, and that sounds like a good thing. So what's the problem? The problem is that Joseph apparently does not know any of that yet. The text back in Matthew 1 verse 18 implies that Mary had kept Gabriel's announcement to her private. Verse 18 says that she was found to be with child. She was discovered to be with child. That implies that the discovery of her pregnancy came about through some other means than her announcing it. You know, she didn't go on Facebook and say, hey, I'm pregnant. It may have been after she returned from visiting Elizabeth that she had a bit of a baby bump. Maybe that's how she was found out to be pregnant. And if that's the case, that she didn't broadcast what had happened, the information she had received from Gabriel, you can't really blame her for not talking about it. Who would believe that that had happened? Such a thing had never happened before, a virgin conception. It would just sound like some outlandish lie to try and cover up an act of adultery. So apparently Mary kept quiet about it, and she trusted that God would vindicate her in his perfect timing. Verse 19 finds Joseph coming up against his lack of 
knowledge about what had happened. Verse 19, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Joseph was a righteous man. That is, he was a man who trusted in God and who desired to live life God's way. And being the righteous man that he was, what do you think he was looking for in a wife? He was looking for a woman who also trusted in God, a woman who also sought to live life God's way. And when he discovered that his betrothed was pregnant, naturally he assumed, because it wasn't his child, naturally he assumed that it was due to her being unfaithful to him. So his hopes of Mary being that godly wife were dashed, and he no longer was able to consider Mary to be the kind of woman that God would want him to marry. And so he sought to terminate his engagement with her. But verse 19 also tells us that Joseph was a gentleman. He did not want to disgrace her. He did not want to publicly shame her. He did not want to ruin her life in a fit of jealous rage by taking them through some kind of nasty public spectacle. So he resolved to divorce Mary in the quietest, most private way that he could. That's the problem, the human problem before Joseph. But what appears to be a problem in man's eyes is often not at all a problem in God's eyes. What presented a problem for Joseph was nothing but the divine program of God being flawlessly carried out. In verses 20 to 21, we find the divine program, God's plan. Verse 20, But when he, Joseph, had considered this, that is, considered to send her away secretly, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, it says that Joseph had planned to send her away secretly. And in verse 20, it says that he had considered this. That word for consider, it means to process information by thinking about it carefully. So Joseph has this carefully thought out plan in place when he goes to sleep that night. You wonder, as I suggested last night, you wonder if he intended when he woke up that next morning to put his plan into motion. And it's that night when God steps in and vindicates Mary in the eyes of Joseph and informs Joseph of what his plan is. It's interesting that the angel of God begins by addressing Joseph as son of David. Son of David, that's how he addresses him. Joseph, being a man of faith, was no doubt familiar with the scriptures, and certainly he would know about God's promise to King David that God would establish David's throne forever by causing one of his descendants to be the king of kings, the Messiah. And by starting off by calling Joseph son of David, the angel is preparing Joseph to hear what he's about to tell him. The angel commands Joseph to not be afraid to go through with his marriage to Mary. And what's the reason he gives to Joseph to not be afraid in verse 20? 
He says, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The reason that Joseph must not be afraid is because of where this child came from. This child is not due to unfaithfulness on Mary's part. Far from it. This child instead has come about through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. God, by his amazing grace, has seen fit to use Mary and Joseph to accomplish his divine program for the redemption of mankind. What is exactly this program that God has in mind? What is God planning to do through this incredibly unusual series of events? By, by causing this virgin to conceive and to eventually bear a son, what was God doing? Was he doing this just so that we could have something nostalgic to think about once a year? Is Christmas just a time to go goo-goo-eyed over a baby in a manger? Is it just a time to give presents to other people because some wise men at some time brought some presents to some baby in a manger? What is the point of what we're reading here this morning? Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Here's the point of all of this. This is why we have a baby in a manger. This is the point in verse 21. This was why Mary, no doubt, had to suffer months of anxiety over what her betrothed was going to think when he found out that she was pregnant. This was why Joseph's dreams and this picturesque idea of marriage in his head, this is why that was blown out of the water when he discovered his betrothed to be pregnant and suspected that she had cheated on him. It was all a part of God's perfect plan. And this was the plan. The child that the Holy Spirit had caused to be miraculously conceived in Mary's womb would be a son, and Joseph was to call this son's name Jesus, and the reason that Joseph was to name this son Jesus was because he would save his people from their sins. That's the plan. Now, I mentioned this last night, but if you weren't there, there's something interesting here that I don't want you to miss. As most of you know, the name Jesus means the Lord saves, or Jehovah saves, Yahweh saves. And yet, in verse 21, who is the one said to be saving people here? This child. And in fact, in the Greek, it said emphatically, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for, and the Greek literally says, he himself will save his people from their sins. This child will save his people from their sins. And yet he's named the Lord saves. What does that imply? It implies that the child being carried in Mary's belly is who? The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh himself. And that is the good news that Christmas heralds to us. You and I are sinners. We have committed gross crimes against God. We have to be honest about that and not sugarcoat it. Before Christ and without Christ, we are idolaters. We are willing to worship 
anything and everything except the only one who's worthy of our worship, the God who made us. We are lovers of sin and self instead of being lovers of God. And yet, God desired to save us. Now, what has God done to accomplish that? God did not send a mere man to do it. No mere man can pay for another man's sins because every man who is only a man is a sinner himself. A sinner cannot atone for the sins of other sinners. And even if there were such a thing as a perfect man who was only a man, that one man could never atone for the sins of a whole people. Nor did God send an angel to save us from our sins. No angel would be a fitting substitute for man because it is man who has sinned against God and it is man who must pay for those sins against God. And for the same reason, God would not just snap his fingers and wipe our slates clean because he is a just God. And being constrained by his very nature, he must uphold justice and he must bring to account mankind who has so sinned against him. Nor could God come merely as God to die for our sins because God cannot die because he is eternal and immutable. So it seems impossible for man to be saved. So what did God do? Well, God, that is, God the Son, took on flesh and became a man while still being God so that as a man he could live the perfect life that no other man could live and that as a man he could go and die on the cross in the place of other men paying the penalty that they deserve to pay. But how is it that the death of this one man would suffice to pay for the sins of a whole people? It's because this one man is also the one God. And because this man is also God, the human life, the human nature that he took upon himself and that he laid down on the cross in death is a life of infinite worth. Because this man is also God. And he died for me. And because the life he gave for us is of infinite worth, his death was able to fully atone for the sins of a whole people. What a plan. We could never conceive of such a plan. We wouldn't even know such a plan was possible. And that brings us to verses 22 to 23, where we see the impossible predicted, the impossible prophecy this plan of God's was not a last-ditch effort. It was not a spur-of-the-moment kind of plan. God doesn't make those kinds of plans. Nothing is spur-of-the-moment with the Lord. No, this was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And in fact, what we are reading of here in the Gospel of Matthew was spoken some 700 years previous in the writings of God's prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And Matthew quotes that passage for us. We've seen the human problem. We've seen the divine program. Now we learn of the impossible prophecy. Verses 22 to 23. It says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, 
and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Turn with me back to Isaiah, because I want you to be informed a little bit about the context into which this prophecy was spoken. Isaiah chapter 7. In this chapter, we meet King Ahaz, who was the king of Judah. And in this chapter, the northern kingdom of Israel, led by King Pekah, and the kingdom of Aram, led by King Rezin, have joined forces to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. We see that in chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, where it says, Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. This is a bad situation that Ahaz and Judah are facing. But in verses 3 through 9, God goes on to reassure King Ahaz that this combined enemy force will not succeed against him. And at the end of verse 9, God warns Ahaz to believe in God or else. He says, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Then in verses 10 through 11, God graciously offers to give a sign to Ahaz, whereby he may have confidence that the word of the Lord through Isaiah would come true, that these enemy forces would not overcome him. Verse 10, then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. That's an incredible offer. God was offering Ahaz to ask for a sign of his choosing. And he could ask for a sign as impossible as he could possibly think of for God to do. And God would do it to show him that what he had promised would come true, that these two armies would not gain the victory over him. And what does Ahaz do? Ahaz feigns humility by rejecting God's gracious offer. Verse 12, But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. In Ahaz, we see right there what the problem with our sinful hearts is before the Lord gets a hold of us. Our hearts are totally contrary to everything God commands us. Typically, we ask for signs when God is expecting us to just take him at his word. Jesus said, a sinful and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But then here, God commands Ahaz to ask him for a sign, something that we are sinfully prone to do. But when God asks him to ask him for a, or commands him to ask him for a sign, Ahaz refuses to. You see how contrary we are to God left to our own devices. If God says, go this way, we said, no, I'm going this way. And if God says, well, yeah, go this way, we say, no, no, I'm going to go this way. That's what Ahaz is doing here. 
And in fact, Ahaz would refuse to trust God at all. And as we learn in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, Ahaz would instead seek help from Assyria, which would completely backfire on him. In verses 13 to 14, Isaiah rebukes Ahaz and says that God himself will choose a sign. Verse 13, then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Because of Ahaz's unbelief and disobedience, he would not have the benefit of seeing this sign take place in his lifetime. The fulfillment of the sign the Lord chose would not happen for 700 years. And what kind of sign did God choose? Was it not as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven? God picked a sign that would be more impossible than anything that you or I could have thought to ask. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. A virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. Impossible. And that son would not only be a human child conceived in a virgin's womb, but this child would also be God himself, which is why the prophet says that she will call him Emmanuel, which which Matthew tells us means God with us. Impossible. But with God, we know what? All things are possible. And God can accomplish this sign. And he has accomplished this sign. But Ahaz, because of his unbelief, did not benefit from what God had graciously offered him. Back in Matthew Chapter 1, what does the angel's proclamation of the word of God produce in Joseph? Here we see the faithful product. What is produced in Joseph by what he's heard from the angel? Verses 24 to 25. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. How did Joseph respond? He responded in faith and obedience. And those two things always go hand in hand. Faith and obedience always go hand in hand. Faith is to obedience what the root of a plant is to the fruit it bears. Faith produces obedience. If you and I say that we have faith in God, but we do not obey God, then that indicates that we do not really have faith in God. James makes this very clear in his letter, chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. He says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, 
What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Joseph had faith in God. Joseph had true faith in God. And so he moved to obey God in accordance with what the angel had told him. He took Mary as his wife. He kept her a virgin until the child was born. He named his adopted son Jesus. Joseph had been planning to do one thing. But when God said to him, no, I want you to do this, Joseph trusted in God enough to throw his own plans out the window and to follow what God said. God had just told Joseph that this child would save his people from their sins. And from that point on, Joseph was all in on God's plan, fully committed, because he believed in what God had told him. How about you and me? You have heard today what God has done to save sinners. Why is sin something to be saved from? Because sin is a terminal illness that will kill you by the wrath of God that it incurs upon itself. Sin is like the combined forces of Aram and Israel crouching at the door of Judah that should leave you shaking in your boots like those enemy forces left Ahaz and his people shaking in their boots. But God has just told you this morning through his inerrant and infallible word that sin need not overtake you. And God has given you a sign as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven to show you that you can trust what he's promising you. 2,000 years ago, God himself became a baby and he was born into this world through a virgin. Will you be like Ahaz and reject the sign that God has given you? Or will you be like Joseph and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one who can save you from your sins? And will you follow him in obedience for the rest of your life? You may think that you don't have what it takes to obey Jesus, and you're right, you don't. But you are not saved through your works. You are saved through the work of Christ. You are saved by the grace of the Savior through faith in him alone. So run to him in faith. And when you come to him by faith, if it is true faith, having been saved by Jesus through that faith, that faith will then begin to produce obedience in your life. And you will know, I'm alive. Christ has made me alive. I really believe. I've really been saved because I'm not what I used to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this impossible sign that you have accomplished 2,000 years ago, showing us that you are true and that this gracious offer of salvation that you extend to us, you will no doubt carry it out if we will just trust you. Lord, you've given us the sign of all signs. God himself, born of a virgin, come to save mankind. Lord, help us to believe. 
Like you said to Ahaz, if you do not believe, you will not be established. But the opposite is also true. If we believe, Lord, you will forgive us, grant us eternal life through the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. We praise you for this. Help us to believe in you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.